Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Power in Weakness, with a message entitled, Confident in the New Covenant. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. not mentioned this often, but for most of my life, I've struggled with a very deep sense of feeling that I'm wholly inadequate for the task that God has assigned to me. You know, if I allow my feelings to get the better of me, most of the time I try not to, but if I allow my feelings to express themselves, I have long felt, well, just like a fraud. I don't think I have much to offer. And when I compare myself to the great preachers, both of the past and of the present, You know, I often feel I don't belong in any pulpit at all. (laughs) And some of my critics, I fear, at this very moment are probably saying, yeah, we finally agree with you on something. You shouldn't be allowed to preach. But those are the times when my deepest doubts are allowed to play out in my life. And at those moments, I hear the enemy of my soul scoffing me, condemning me, reminding me of my shortcomings. And quite frankly, the enemy of my soul is right about these things things he accuses me of are almost all true. But then I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, and when I reread this passage, the enemy's voice is silenced, and the truth of these passages are prominent. Now, it's not that I'm the only one that feels this way. I find great comfort that when I read my Bible, I find many who are much greater than I, and they are the greatest heroes of the Bible, and they're overwhelmed by their lack of adequacy for the task of their calling. Do you remember how Moses responded when when God called him to deliver his people out of Egypt? Exodus 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. If you entrust me to this task, I'm going to fail, Moses said. You should pick someone far more qualified. How about Gideon's response to God's call to go and deliver Israel from the power of Midian? Judges 6 verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Or you might want to listen to David's word. God told him that his kingdom would be the foundation for the coming of the Messiah. And 2 Samuel 7 verse 18 says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Or listen to Jeremiah's response when he's called to be a prophet. Jeremiah 1 6 says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. How about Peter, when he sensed Jesus calling him? Luke 5 verse 8 says that Peter fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, if there's one thing that all these people have in common, that is people who are called by God and used by him, it is not just that they feel unworthy, but they also feel utterly unable to do what God has called them to do. Now, in our day, that is, in the culture that has has now captured present-day North America, if Moses or Gideon or David or Jeremiah or Peter were to say those kinds of things, we would send them to a therapist, and we would tell them that they need to learn to believe in themselves. I mean, what with a little self-affirmation training, they'll soon put those feelings to rest. 
They'll learn to confess positive things about themselves. They'll say, I'm strong, I'm brave, I can communicate well, I am worthy. Did you know that attitude has destroyed many? Anyone asked to do anything by God is incapable. Feelings of unworthiness are necessary for us to be used by God. And the title of this series, this study in 2 Corinthians, is Power in Weakness. And as we've seen, Paul has been opening himself up to the Corinthians. He has, he said, at one time in his ministry, despaired of life itself. And that was due to the persecution that he had endured and the rigors of his ministry, as well as the withering criticism he's endured. He was collapsing under the weight. And some in Corinth had argued that he was impressive in his letters, but he's unimpressive when face to face. And furthermore, they claimed there were a great many more capable preachers than Paul. And he must have been lacking in support. I mean, after all, why, why is he so poor? And if God were taking care of him, why has he been beaten up so often? And furthermore, he has no letters of recommendation the way other preachers have. And then there were some who were questioning whether he was truly an apostle at all. And indeed, in his last letter, Paul had admitted to the Corinthians that that when he had first come to Corinth in the first place, he had come to them with fear and trembling. And yet, in spite of all those weaknesses, Paul notes that still God has used him. The Corinthian congregation has formed They are his letters of recommendation from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of God. How have such wonders arisen from so weak a man? Well, given that background, let's read today's passage. And here I'm reading 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You know, Paul begins not by expressing inadequacy, but by expressing confidence. Paul realizes that his detractors in Corinth are always ready to accuse him of some real or perceived weakness. And furthermore, since Paul speaks of the success of his ministry in Corinth, I mean, perhaps now his detractors are going to add arrogance to the list of all of his other sins. So notice that the sentence he writes begins with the word such. Such is our confidence, he says. So great is our confidence. I have, he says, no shortage of confidence in the work that God has called me to do. In spite of all the criticism I've received and in spite of all my weaknesses, my confidence is at an all-time high. Well, does that mean that Paul is fundamentally different from Moses or Gideon or all the others we've mentioned? Well, no, he's not. Let's take some time and understand what he means when he says, I have no shortage of confidence. See, Paul uses that word confidence six times in all of his letters, but four of those occurrences are right here in 2 Corinthians. So it's easy to see that Paul thinks it's very important to express to the Corinthians. He doesn't lack any confidence at all. What does he mean? Well, the word confidence means a belief in something or someone. Let me use an illustration. Let's say a friend of yours is arrested for a crime that he didn't commit. And what if he were to say, I'm confident I'm going to be fully exonerated? Now then, that would be a curious thing. And what is he basing his confidence? 
Is there some piece of evidence he has? Does he believe in the justice system? Does he believe in his lawyer? Is he believing that he's able to convince the justice system? I mean, perhaps he's bribed the judge, or perhaps he's just being foolish. I mean, which is it? You understand what I'm saying? Confidence comes from somewhere. So a person might be confident in himself, but he might also be confident in something outside of himself. The word confident by itself doesn't yet describe where the confidence comes from. And here Paul makes it very clear. He's not confident in himself at all. I mean, after all, he was the guy who despaired of life. And look again at verse 4. He says that his confidence is toward God. He's, He's confident as he faces God. He is confident looking at God because he is brought into the presence of God through Jesus who called him to salvation and also to his apostolic ministry. Okay, we need to examine that. What does that mean? Does he mean that he thinks God is going to protect him from his critics or vindicate him before his critics? No, I don't think it means that at all. I mean, after all, he suffered so much and God didn't protect him then. So let's let Paul describe his abundant confidence. We begin with the first part of verse 5. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. So if you've been paying attention to this study, you might hear, be reminded of something Paul said earlier. You know, way back in chapter 2, verse 16, where he was describing that he has been given a task of spreading the aroma of Christ abroad, he then asks, who is sufficient for these things? He means, how in the world should I be adequate or competent or able to do what Christ has called me to do. I can't do it. Not just me, but anyone. How can any human being be the aroma of Christ in this world? The answer is we can't. And Paul says, I can't. I'm inadequate to do what God has called me to do. But my eyes are on God, I'm facing Him, and I am filled with confidence. Hey, this is Dr. John Newfeld of Back to the Bible Canada. Take the opportunity today to sponsor a pastor to attend our June 2020 Back to the Bible Canada third annual Bible teaching conference hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India. Conferences will take place in Delhi, Hyderabad, and Chennai. I will be teaching pastors to learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. You know, many pastors in India have little opportunity for formal education, so being trained and equipped can mean so much to their ministry. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor for only $55, which includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. Join us in this great cause of continuing to equip pastors in India. Consider sponsoring one or more pastors to attend the India Bible Teaching Conference this June Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca. For a moment, let me get back to my own feelings of inadequacy in doing the ministry that God has called me to do. There have been times when I have stood at a pulpit and the enormity of it suddenly occurs to me. I mean, who is crazy enough to believe that he can speak for God. I mean, what am I doing here? 
If I pretend to speak for God, I mean, it's madness. Who is sufficient for these things? And here's Paul's easy answer to his own apostolic calling. I'm not adequate, he says, to do the task that God has given me. I am like Moses, who says, I'm a poor speaker. Or like Gideon, who said, I'm very weak. Or like Peter, who told Jesus he was a profoundly sinful man. And and that's the mystery of Paul. A man who's amazingly confident, who doesn't quit under the withering criticism he has endured, and at the same time is quite willing to say that he has no personal self-assurance. I mean, he knows his own sin, and he knows his own failings, and he's not an egomaniac, nor is he a person who believes in himself when he proclaims his confidence. I wonder what you're thinking at this moment. Is it possible to be humble and to be confident at the same time? Is it possible to say against this world, I don't believe in myself at all, and then in the very next breath to say, I am the most confident person alive? One of the worst things that can happen to any preacher is that he can become a great communicator and he knows it. I mean, he can have people eating out of his hand. He has them laughing at one moment, then crying the next, and he commands the English language so that it becomes his servant. His list of illustrations tug at the heart or excite the mind, and the books that he's written, well, they attract his listeners. See, what's wrong with that? Listen, nothing is wrong with that, nothing at all except his confidence in conducting a successful ministry might just arise out of his abilities. His followers will then rave about him. They depend on him. What's wrong with that? Well, on the one hand, I suppose nothing at all. But on the other hand, I have sometimes noticed that these kinds of preachers come to rely on their abilities. They're confident in themselves. And so they learn to rely on their skill and not the scripture that they're preaching. And you can see it when they preach. Because what you remember from their sermons are the stories and the jokes and the the things that have occurred. But when you get home, you're hard-pressed to find those lessons in the actual text of scripture itself. I mean, where in the Bible did they get that? Well, as a matter of fact, they didn't get it there. And so after a while, folks don't bring their Bible when they listen to them. They just remember what the preacher said. The Bible, well, it doesn't sound near as exciting as the guy in the pulpit. And that's what I mean when I say a confidence develops in such a man that he can hold an audience. And even though he says all the right words, he never has a confidence in anything but himself. And notice the contrast in Paul. He's not lacking in confidence either, not a bit. But at the same time, he's aware of his insufficiency or his inadequacies or his shortcomings. And then in the last part of verse 5 through to verse 6, he says, Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, let's start with the matter of the new covenant. So what does Paul mean when he speaks of the new covenant? Well, let's start with the old covenant. The Old Covenant begins with the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses had led Israel out of Egypt, and they traveled, and they come all the way to Mount Sinai. It's a mountain of God. And before they're ready to go into the Promised Land, they've got to hear from God. So on the day that they meet with God, the mountain begins to shake. There's, there's thunder and lightning, and there's a long trumpet blast, and, and the people of the camp are quaking with fear. They're terrified that the great Creator has come to speak with them. And then God speaks. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And with that, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And then when that's done, the people beg Moses. They say, you speak to us and we're going to listen, but don't let God speak to us again or we're going to die. Experience is overwhelming. And then Moses explains, Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And then, of course, God gives them other laws and so forth. But let me go ahead now to Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, now, famous last words. Because, as you know, in no time they're building a golden calf idol, just like the one they had in Egypt, and they're in open rebellion against God. And then for the next 40 years, they rebel. They live under wrath till the whole generation dies in the desert. They, the generation that saw Egypt decimated by God, that saw God part the Red Sea, give them manna every morning, heard God speak from Mount Sinai, that very generation rebelled and turned from God's laws, no matter what they said. Now look, Does that mean there's something wrong with the law of God, that it's defective? No, not at all. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. It's holy. It's a display of God's righteous character. However, the law came without the ability to change the human heart. It would declare the holy will of God, but the human heart hates holiness. All that the law could then do is point out sin, not cure it. The law is like a medical diagnosis. It diagnoses cancer. It just doesn't heal it. Again, that doesn't mean that we should do away with the law. I mean, what a marvelous diagnostic tool it is. But fast forward to that night, right before Jesus was betrayed. He gathered his disciples in the upper room, and they'd celebrated the Passover. And as they do, he takes the cup of blessing. According to Luke 22, verse 20, he says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant, he says, the new covenant in my blood. See, that's because the law couldn't forgive sins. It could point them out, but the blood of goats and bulls could not cleanse the heart. But there's something about a new covenant. Not only were sins forgiven, but let me read to you from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, in which he prophesies about the new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make, that is the new covenant, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Watch this. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. That, says Paul, that's the promise that gives me confidence. I know the power of God. I know the new covenant. I know it, that it is present when I preach the gospel of Jesus. I trust in the sufficiency of the power of the cross to transform human lives and hearts. I never doubt that when I proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, People's hearts are being changed. I have confidence that it will happen every single time. Now then, notice that at the end of our passage, Paul will say, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
So do not misunderstand what Paul is saying. He's not saying that he doesn't preach Scripture or that Scripture kills. What Paul means by the letter is that simply announcing God's will, his law, without announcing the power to keep it, simply brings people under judgment. See, if all we proclaim is law or God's moral standards or we should be following Jesus or whatever we say, whenever we preach just like that without the covenant of the blood of Christ that announces that grace has come through the cross, when we don't announce the power of the Holy Spirit to transform the heart to love the things of God, if we only announce law, we only condemn. That's because we've all fallen short of God's law. That's because we're all sinful. That's because we need a change of heart. See, Paul says, I'm confident in the gospel of Jesus. I'm confident in the glad news that Christ died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. I'm confident that he gives new hearts to sin-soaked people. And that's why Paul never depended on his power to communicate. He didn't rely on his own skill set. He depended on the gospel. His emphasis was never on preaching ability. It didn't bother him if they said he preached poorly. He wasn't confident in his preaching. He was confident in the gospel. And that's why a man or a woman can be completely aware of his or her insufficiency or unworthiness, or weakness, or lack of abilities, or wonder about this gift mix that they have. How can I possibly do it? But here's the insight that Paul gives us. The greater our weakness, or let me put it this way, the more we realize our weakness, the more we rely on the power of the gospel. And that's the point of everything. Paul says, I'm so confident because I know the one who has given the gospel. John, I think it's an interesting thing about Paul. I mean, all of us want to be confident in Christ. We want to live with that confidence. But Paul has so much of it, it seems at times, people might consider him almost arrogant. Yeah, they do, because, I mean, he spends so much time defending his ministry, but he has to do that because... Um, God has appointed him as an apostle. So, you know, he speaks the revelation that comes from God. So if he's not pushing that, then the, the message gets lost. So we need to hear that, you know, Paul constantly defending his ministry is defending his apostolic ministry, which is the scripture itself. So we need to hear it so that we can feel confidence in the message that he's delivered to us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in 2 Corinthians, Power in Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. We've received so many notes and emails of deep appreciation for Laugh Again. Well, we're expanding our programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be aired on YouTube to present Laugh Again Take 5. 
These are five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. For more information or to support the ministry of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.